That's exciting, though, because then you put the 84 unit under contract with your own money for the earnest money. I'm not sure who the investor is going to be. Exactly. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. All right, welcome back to another podcast. On today, I have Kurt Bender, founder of The Bender Companies, which specializes in 100-plus unit, Class B and Class C multifamily in the Midwest. Kurt, thanks for being on. Appreciate it, Drew. I'm excited to be here. Great. I'm happy to have you on. And I know the last couple of years you've gone through a lot of really big growth. I think probably last time we talked, you were, you had like 300 units and we're looking at a big deal in Michigan. And like a month ago, I asked how many units you up to, and he said 2,500. So I was like, all right, well. Absolutely. It's been an exciting few years for sure. We've, we've definitely gone through some growing and it's been exciting. So I think what I really want to focus on on this episode, we haven't, Kurt does for one, he does workforce housing. So we haven't had anybody on yet who focuses on that and then i'm sure you learned a ton the last three years growing like that so then want to really dig into that absolutely so i think but just maybe to start out i guess how did you get get going in real estate kind of maybe take me from the beginning yeah so i started bender companies about 10 years ago in 2011 and i sort of grew up in the industry a little bit my grandfather was a carpenter by trade and just in my high school days, I kind of helped him out with maintaining, he had an industrial building actually out in the Chicago suburbs. And I just really helped him out with the main maintenance of that building, essentially kind of getting that hands-on experience of what it really takes to manage, manage real estate. And it was him being a carpenter. It was, he, he wouldn't sub out any work to anybody. So it was like getting up on the roof and, and patching the roof and changing out water heaters. So it was really like almost kind of the maintenance side of it. Right? right. And that's really what kind of got my, caught me and got my interest in it. And then from there, it was about understanding what's the financial side of the business and, and how do you kind of evaluate the real estate and go into, how do you, how do you find it? How do you find one that when you want to buy one? So that was really kind of in like the 2008. And obviously yeah. there was a lot going on then too with, with the recession and, and, and values being kind of depressed. And in 2011 is actually when I kind of took that leap and tried to figure out, okay, nice. how do I do this? And, and I just went on LoopNet essentially. Because um, at that point, let's say, so 2010, 11, what were you doing? You were working with, still with your... Yeah, I had dude. some like other side jobs and things yeah. like that, not in real estate essentially. So my real estate experience at that time was, was really just that industrial building. And did he own that building or he was yeah, managing it? Yeah, he nice. owned it. So going this, back, his, he sort of got started with the traditional story of owning a duplex, renting out one and living in the others. That's going back to like the 80s. Nice. And, and then he, he worked his way up to the industrial. Exactly. Thing. He had Great. eventually, I think he owned 32 units in, in the city of Chicago. And then at some point in like the 80s, decided to, to move out to the suburbs and nice. buy that. And he sold his 32 unit he had here and, and moved out to the suburbs to buy that. Nice. So that's that's interesting actually my my mom and dad bought like in the 70s like a, a farm and it came with a like a rental house basically or mm -hmm. just a house on it and they tr they rented it out and tried to do everything themselves and yeah. the rent was like a hundred dollars a month and so the tenants weren't very good and he's when i told him what i wanted to do when i was a teenager he's like i 
I don't know about that. That's because he, he was doing everything himself. So then yeah. he's just repeatedly basically rebuilding this house and mm-hmm. then are having hoarders that's, and that's, stuff. Yeah. That's like exactly that, that same story. So when I was in 2011, when I started, I went on LoopNet and I found this eight unit. It was actually a fractured condo deal, which you had nice. a lot of those at yeah. that time. You had a lot of failed apartment conversions to condos where the developer was stuck with some units. And I came across these eight units and made an offer on it, not really knowing how I was going to purchase right. it. I mean, I didn't really have the funds to do it. And then they actually accepted my offer. Nice. And then I went to my grandfather and my mom and just some other family members. I'm like, hey, we want to figure out how to buy this. And one of the first things my grandfather said was, I don't want to get into multifamily like this because <laughs> he was the type that would go out at midnight and fix the, the leaky toilet yeah. or whatever. And he that's how he envisioned some of the challenges of of running essentially apartment units. And that's really not the case if you can bring in third-party management or sort of get to a scale where you have other staff that can kind of handle those things for you. Right. So then in your, your grandfather had the duplex and then the warehouse, what was your, what was your dad doing? Was he in the mix on that? No, no. So that, so that's my mom's dad. And so, so that was kind of on that side of the family. And your mom Um, was doing something else. She was doing some stuff with him for a little bit, but nothing didn't really, she didn't get caught by, get bit by the real estate bug. So, so then what, what did he, and what was, so for eight unit, I mean, what was the total deal size then? I think it was 480,000, something like, it was really, I mean, it was like 40, 50 grand, 60 grand a unit, something like that. It was really low. And then obviously we put some debt on it. So I think it was a sort of like figure out how to come up with a hundred grand. Right. And somehow so. with family and friends, you're able to do that. Exactly. And that's where that nice. And so then what, so then you start out with the eight unit, what, what comes next? So I did that for a little bit, just kind of, and I kind of took up after my grandfather and did all that sort of work myself. So I was leasing the units and I was turning them when people moved out and it was going well and we had good, good activity. And at that point we found additional units in that same complex because nice. that was that fractured condo deal. So we actually ended up over the course of the next three years or so, we actually ended up purchasing an additional 17 units in that sort of How complex. Many total so, units were so in it was this? 26. We own 26 units out of a hundred. Got um, it. Nice. Eventually. And then what did you do for debt on that? I thought you were buying an eight unit and all the units actually, when you're describing that. Where so does. we bought, well, we bought the eight units up front. So we got one loan on that. And then some of the other properties were, we were able to buy in bulk as well. And others, we just purchased one off and we just went to the same lender that, that provided that for like us. Like a local bank. It was a local thing. bank. Nice. Exactly. Great. So that's a pretty, that's a complicated deal for your first one then. I don't think I really understood it, to be honest. Yeah. It was kind of one of those where I, the price made sense. I mean, I think, I think about real estate pretty simplistically. I think I look at the price per unit and I look at the rent and, and I look right. at that gross rent multiplier. And if, if that number is attractive to me, which we typically try to be somewhere sub eight on right. a gross rent multiplier, then I think it's a, a pretty good investment. Right. And that's a good, that's a really good starting point. And that's, that's what I did starting out. I still use that today in some of the markets we're in where something could be weird with utilities or taxes that yeah. changes that obviously, but then it's it's a it's really good to compare it because you get sent something and same thing like in Chicago it's the GRM's a little higher but yep. if I get sent something over a, a twelve or I already know it's gonna be it's gonna be tough where like this building we got sent it was like it wasn't a twelve and I'm like exactly. All right, let's dig in and check it out but that that was probably like the first pre-screen that or just using mm-hmm. an expense ratio and cap rate just to do something quick 
So exactly. that, that's so. What were you so even on the first deal? You knew about grocery multiplier, or that came later, or what? I were didn't. You? I guess I didn't really know like that specific term, but I understood the concept of how much rent are you collecting versus what you're paying, and sort of just doing like a backup napkin. Here's your gross rents. Here's your expenses, and your here's your mortgage. And if it's an yeah. eight or nine percent return, it it made sense. And so eight or nine percent cash on cash on that. That's that's what I did in my first deal too. When I explained mm-hmm. it, it was so much to learn and I had an idea on what grocery multipliers, these deals were in Madison, Wisconsin, what yep. what the market was. I was in line with the market, but there's just so much that I didn't know. I thought, well, as, Leo, as long as I can get a good handle on the rents, just so it's the same thing you're saying, and the yeah. expenses and it's cash flowing, worst case, I screw up the rest of it and I just hold it and I make two, 300 bucks a month and just sit on it and pay my exactly. loan down. And that's my own money. So I can figure it in these first deals, you can figure it out. It'd be hard to get an investor with that right. plan. I don't, I'm not sure what it will. I'm not sure for sure what this will be exactly. worth, but I, but then if you just focus, so I always tell that to people and it's interesting. You have the same answer. And a lot of people I talk to, that's what they say. Well, mm-hmm. I'm just getting started, but it made 8%. So I just figured, all right, worst case I'm making yeah. that and I just hold it. So exactly. It was, it was really kind of simplistic thought process of you're, you're getting two or 3% at that time, maybe in the bank, maybe a little bit more, 4% and you can get 8% here. Right. You start paying your loan down and even mm -hmm. when you factor that in, maybe you're making 12 now. And that's how I, I still kind of look at some of the deals that way, where then if something were to go wrong and you, but you still think you got your rents, right. I mean, rents could change, but you, well, nice. So then what did the, what did the next deal look like or what? So the progression from there was really sort of similar process. We found some other units out in Streamwood. It was a 16 unit, same sort of fractured condo scenario that we were able, it was a bank owned deal. And it was more of a portfolio. There was 16 units in Streamwood. And then there was another 20 units in Palatine that the same bank owned. And that was the same scenario where we were able to purchase these for about 40,000 a unit, put some debt on it and run those. So how we sort of built up to that is in the meantime, I was I was flipping a lot of houses. So from 2011 to 2015, I was also flipping houses to sort of generate some quick cash to put back into the buy and hold strategy. And then also by a certain point, I think it was around 2000, end of like 2012, those initial units that we purchased in 2011, we were able to create some value there and and refinance that as well. So sort of being able to generate some capital, we were able to build up to whatever that was, I think about 60 units or so from that time. And, and really from there, it was, it was then sort of branching out to like the next sort of network. So that was all kind of done internally with some family money. And then we came into a larger deal that was in Schaumburg where we did a 50, 50 deal with a sort of a family friend. And that was in 2015. So that was a little, that was our largest deal at the time. It was about a $4 million purchase. Nice. How many Um, units was that? That was 63. That's, that's a big jump. And so basically doubled at that time. We, we had 60 and we bought another 63. Nice. And then I guess what, for the house flipping, then what were you, how were you locating the houses? Like a direct the MLS. Or... No, it was, I mean, at that time, <clears throat> there was so many foreclosures and short sales and bank-owned properties. I mean, it was, it was pretty easy to find value in some of those houses. Interesting. Where you could buy, I mean, just as an example, there was one where I purchased it for, I think, $89,000. And it was about a, probably like 2,200 square foot house. Wow. 
and I put 40 grand into it and I sold it for like 190. Nice. And that whole process from the time that I purchased it to fix it up to actually sell, it was about four months. Nice. So that's um, great. You could gen you could definitely generate some quick thirty to fifty thousand dollar profits that way at that time. And that's interesting because that actually I see people that are doing have a whole house flipping business online or definitely. just wherever on on Instagram. I get tons of ads for mm -hmm. courses and stuff. But I look at that and I go, actually these guys have good tactics. Maybe I should be doing that for apartments. <laughs> that's why I was curious if you were doing any of that, because that uh like we actually just bought a one of the deals in Arizona and then somebody that we're buying a property from a different one we got a direct mailer from her so that yeah. must be part of her strategy just sending out direct mail and mm -hmm. picking deals off directly so when i saw the sender i'm like oh that's funny we're buying a <laughs> deal off her but that okay nice so then that after the schaumburg deal then so now you have that was really more like a partner versus like you'll say an investor correct so yeah, that's more of like a partner like a 50 50 partnership right so then they're doing some of the work as well and correct Okay, yeah. nice. But that's a big jump then where you're doubling your business basically. So that was the first time where, where I actually had to hire somebody. Up and up until then, it was just myself. And at that point when we had 120 units or so, 123, I needed somebody to, to do some of the leasing and I needed a maintenance guy to go in and fix those leaky toilets. Right. So we actually, I hired two people at, at that time and, and sort of moved out of working from my house to getting an office. <laughs> nice. And I know that you, yeah. you self, your company manages all the properties still yeah. today, right? Correct. And so what, what made you go that route? Cause you, I mean, you started out that way and then you kept yeah. it going to be curious on. Well, I think I, I learned a lot of tools in that time from 2011 to 2015, doing that work myself, yeah. sort of being the property manager, being the leasing agent, being the maintenance guy. I learned a lot of the tools and sort of what it took. And I, I sort of like that, that control aspect of kind of knowing what's going on day to day and, and what some of the challenges are at the property. And I sort of just kind of, I, I don't know, I, third party management was never really like a thought to me, I guess it was, it was more of a, I'm going to purchase this property and I'm going to part of what I think we do well right. is, is sort of optimizing the operations. And that's not just executing a business plan or renovating units or whatever, but it's also like kind of cleaning up the expenses and figuring out where you can save some money without really sacrificing quality. So the way that I think about that is sort of your controllable expenses. You're not going to have any impact on utilities. You could install low flow shower heads or things like that to yeah. sort of reduce the cost, but you're not going to negotiate a new rate with the utility providers right or even some of those things you can do them with this through your management company if you want to have like but i know you mean that with the controllables you yeah keep going if you have more it's just like for example if you want you purchase a deal and they're using some trash provider and you, you just bid everything out you get three bids you figure out if is that a high bid is maybe it's a maybe it's a really attractive and there's no change but i, I think just kind of getting granular with every single service contract and figuring out where you can save money is is sort of what I'm referring to. And we, we on all the deals, some we self-manage and then some we third party. And on the ones we third party, we do all the stuff you're saying. So then at times I'm like, this is like a, like you basically then need a internal asset manager, somebody to do exactly. all this where for you, you can kind of cut out the middleman, so to speak, and just train the people that are at the property, how to do it or exactly that. And then one of the books I read early on just about real estate investing, his, one of his tips was whether or not you manage your properties long-term or, or you should definitely start out managing for the exact reason you said, where mm -hmm. those first three years you learned so much. And if you would have gone and hired somebody, you really know what you're getting. Where if you just yeah. start 
having never managed everything, every every bill is going to seem so expensive. Like, what this guy was there all day and they <laughs> charged me two hundred bucks. So if you're right. if you manage the deal yourself, you get the bill and you're like, wow, that's that's a good deal. It's, I, it could have been way worse. So exactly, nice. Well, great. Then what? Want to maybe let's jump forward then. So from how yeah. three hundred units to twenty five hundred, how? Part of that next phase from like 2015 to 2017 was just, I, I was obviously building up some track record during that time. And I executed some refinances of some of those properties. And then in 2017, we actually started selling some of those earlier investments. And, and at that point, I started understanding the business a little bit more. And I really started getting out there in terms of networking, meeting more brokers and explaining my goal of, of trying to grow the portfolio and understanding that that's not going to happen by just like internal capital. You need to be able to go out and raise money. So part of that process was just sort of really networking and, and the ability for me to go and hire a couple of people to handle the day-to-day -day really enabled me to focus on that more. Who, who are those hires? That was a, the... a property manager who was basically doing leasing and a maintenance guy. For this, these scattered yes, sites, we'll exactly. So then just one... That one maintenance person and one one essentially property manager. prior to that you were spending just even because i've been in this the situation you're spending a ton of time even just getting a maintenance person to go like an hourly person correct and then you cut out that work and then the rest goes to the property manager now you're freed up exactly i mean my time before that was answering tenant calls basically or showing apartments or turning units like it was there wasn't really a focus for me on like figuring out how to raise money right um, and this more is make 20, those relationships this is in 2017 2016, 2017, yep. And then so I pivoted at that point, started going to a bunch of networking events and essentially got some introduction to some group that eventually have become long-term partners for us and have been able to write bigger checks. So the way that we approach raising money, we, we're not, we don't syndicate, we're not going out to individuals where we've built relationships with larger, larger institutions. So we have really three primary partners today, two of which are private equity funds and one of is a family office. Okay, nice. and, and those groups tend to, to write checks for 90% of the required equity. And then we're coming in with 10%. So kind of your traditional 90-10 structure. Yeah. What, what are they, so then, because 3,000 units, how many, I guess, what's the, or 2,500, what's the dollar size about of that portfolio? So in terms of asset side, that's about a 250 million portfolio at this point. So then even coming up with the earnest money deposits and that 10% of the equity, that's, that's a challenge. Were you able to find an LP that could help with that or how do you work that? This year, yes, because we've, we had a lot of growth in 2021 specifically, but previously we've, we've always sort of been able to float, like if it's a hundred thousand dollar earnest money check to be able to kind of do that internally. No. Um, and we still have like a network of like smaller people. So if we're coming in as a GP at 10%, we might, we might be raising a small portion of that 20 or 30% of that capital might be coming from Makes sense, um, yeah. others. Great. And what, and then, so, cause I think when you say you first, you're kind of really hit the networking harder. I think that's when we met mm -hmm. and I was at the Seabury Cubs game. So. Exactly. But that, but then what, I guess, how do you kind of get your first deal going with one of the institutional investors, family offices. So I met, I met this group at a conference here in Chicago, which was an introduction from an investment sales broker. And basically at that point, I think we had, we were at that like 300 unit level and 
we basically just started talking and I said, look, this is what we do. This is what we're trying to do. We're definitely small, but we're, we're a younger group of people and we're going to hopefully be in this business a long time. And that was sort of my sales pitch was there's a lot of groups that are, have been investing with the same company or same individual for 20 or 30 years. And that person is now 50 or 60 years old and, and potentially going to be retiring soon. And just sort of knowing that, that these groups are going to be looking for that next generation of, of operator or of sponsors. That was kind of my sales pitch to them. And, and then I sort of just was proactive with it. So this group happened to be based in Florida. And after the event, I was actually going to be traveling down to Florida for, for another conference. And I was like, I'd love to come down there and, and kind of meet the whole team and which they were, they were open to. So I went into their office and I kind of met the whole team and I probably was there for about four hours nice. <laughs> talking to a number of different individuals. And, uh, and from there, we, we actually had a live deal at that, at that point, we had an 84 unit property here in suburban Chicago that we had under Great. contract again, sort of like not really knowing how we were going to come up with the money on that one. And this group was, they were interested. I mean, they were, I think it happened pretty quickly, that's, <laughs> which was yeah, that, that's exciting though. Cause then you put the 84 unit under contract with your own money for the earnest money. I'm not sure who the investor is going to be. Exactly. Dang. That's sort of a lot of what I've done from 2011 to like to, that 2017, 18, that was probably the first one where we definitely, we did not have the money to close that without outside, without an outside investment. I had other options at, at that point, but the idea of going to one group and having them give you 90% of the money is, um, that has always been a little bit more attractive to me than the syndicate model where you have to kind of have a network of 50 people right. or 20 people or whatever the number is and have a bunch of different conversations with those folks. What do you, I guess, have you ever lost a earnest money deposit then? If you, we have not. Great. I, I haven't either, but I, I've had the equity more lined up than this, this story so far. Well, the, so that the other thing is we've, we're, we typically don't do hard money. So when we put an earnest money deposit, we still have 30 days of due diligence. And if we don't have our equity figured out at the end of expiration of due diligence, then we, if we, we can try to get an extension and if they don't grant it, then we probably will, will terminate the deal. We're not going to sort of have that yeah. earnest money at risk. Unless we're very confident, like if we, if we've had talks with a group and we know that, that they're going to come around and we just don't have a hard, firm commitment from them, but otherwise you sort of have that timeline, obviously that you don't want to be doing that because that affects your reputation if yeah. you, if you're blowing up deals, but we just, we really didn't, we haven't had that experience. We've, we've been able to get something under contract and, and then find the equity. Have you had to cancel any deals once you got into you were, let's say at the end of your due diligence, couldn't have it lined up in time or? No, not, not because of equity. I mean, we've, we've canceled deals for other reasons. Right, like if course. we find something with in due diligence or something like that, but. But even that, when you say that maybe your reputation take a hit, but then you even haven't even had to do that. No. So that's, that's great. Cause we, uh, I mean, good, good for you. Cause that's, that's really sticking your neck out. Where well, yeah. but you had some sort of backup plan. What was the backup was, plan? Was sort of like the syndicate model, which we had that partner that we did a deal in Schaumburg with, and and just sort of like some other high net worth people that we thought we could throw together a few hundred thousand. Because yeah, on but on eighty four units, what was the equity check on that? One point seven, I think that was we were getting an eighty percent loan on. So then you thought between that other family and maybe some other people you could, you could cobble that we together. We felt pretty good about it, but yeah, that made it, that took a lot of pressure off when we had that commitment for them to essentially give us 1.5 of the 1.7. Yeah, that's a, then that's a good partner to have. Cause most of these, 
LPs or family offices, whatever, they want to be 5 million plus mm -hmm. for equity. So then that it's nice if they're willing to start lower, then you can do something like this where you have some sort of backup plan, or if you would have started out with them on a deal where you needed 6 million of equity, it's like a lot harder to have a backup plan. So, and that's a big jump to, I mean, if you're, if you only have 300 units and then all of a sudden you're trying to do a deal that requires five or $6 million of equity, that's a pretty right. large deal. That's probably a 20, $30 million purchase. So what we've always sort of tried to stay in our lane when it comes to that, if we have 300 units, we're not going to try to go out and buy like a 500 unit right. deal. So we had 300, we bought 84 and then we bought 96. Like we sort of gradually grew. And I think we've always stayed disciplined with our underwriting and, and things like that, which are, I think our partners appreciate. And we, and we learn what they're looking for. So we had a lot of conversations with, with them about what is it that you really want? And for them, it's cash flow and it's, and it's an equity multiple. So they're not as much IRR driven as they are cash on cash and equity multiple focused. That makes sense what they'd want to be in workforce housing then. Yeah. Right? Because the cap rates are a lot are yeah, higher. They're seeking that that double digit cash on cash return, nice. which we've, we've been able to find. It's obvious a little bit harder now than it was in like 1819, right. but we're still finding some good opportunities. Download our hundred plus page passive investing guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the invest now button on our website. Now back to the show. And cause then what, so then you close this first 84 unit with the, the family office. That was so with the private equity, private fund. equity fund. Yeah. And then what's, at that point, you're at 400-ish units. Mm -hmm. what, what comes next? So from there, there was a portfolio that was listed in the south suburbs. It was a 96-unit and a 220-unit. And initially, we, we, we actually bid on both, but we were only awarded the 96-unit. We were a little bit short on pricing for the 220-unit deal. And at that point, we actually did that 96-unit deal with a different group than we did the, the first one with. And then... That 220 unit deal actually came back around to us. It was awarded to another group that fell out of contract. Oh, nice. And then they came back to us. And I think at that point, we, we, I think we moved our price up a little bit, but yeah, not yeah. a whole lot. Interesting. And then we, we ended up getting that one as well. Nice. And then at that point, you kind of diversified your investors a little. Now you got multiple groups you can bring a deal to. Exactly. Then we had two groups. And actually, the 220 unit deal, we ended up actually using both of those groups on that one. Oh, they came in together. So we've, we sort of had that mindset of, okay, let's figure out how on these <clears> larger <throat> deals, because some groups might not want to put in that much, especially when just getting started with us as an operator. Right. We figured out a way to bring in both groups on that. And we had those two groups meet and sort of obviously get comfortable with each other. And that's worked out well. And we've actually done yeah. that on a number of deals moving forward. And what'd you do for governance then, where a lot of times a single check LP, they just want to have all the major decision, right? Yeah. So then they're both in it. So the one still did have all the major decisions because they were the, the majority partner. So it, it ended oh, up being it. a 70, 20, 10 deal. So you had the one private equity fund being 70% of the equity, the family office 20 and us 10. So the, the private equity fund still had some of those major control rights. Makes sense. Cause if it was just a, what, more or less like a 50, 50 contribution from yeah. them or 45, 45, 10, right? Then I was wondering. Yeah, that wouldn't work, at least for the partners that we have. We, those private equity funds, they have to have some of the control rights. So if we do a deal combined with the family office, the family office is always kind of a minority share. Makes sense. And the private equity fund, it's actually a fund. So there's like a, there's a life to it. 
So then they got Correct. a period of time they want to be in it. Some of that control is 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 based on like the duration of that fund and when you're sort of hitting what point in time that deal is taking place relative to their fund. So that specific group is has essentially a 10-year fund cycle. Nice. So depending on where you're at in the cycle of that, you, it could be a shorter four-year hold. Or if you catch it right when they launch the fund, you could potentially hold it for seven, eight, right. nine, ten years. Would they want to try to recycle capital in the fund? Like if you had a, a five-year and a five-year hold, are they going to try to so redeploy or not quite? It depends on the group. There, we do have two different groups. One is a no, and the other one is kind of a yes. Okay, so interesting. It, every group is a little bit different, but the one thing that has been great for us is is all three of our main partners are also growing their their firms. Oh, nice. So that the, that firm that we did our first deal with just relaunched another fund that's almost twice the size of, of their existing fund. Great. So as we're growing, they're also growing, which is, is, has just been a great support, great support for us. Well, nice. Well, for the governance then, like what, how, how have you thought about that? Cause yeah, I mean, one plus when I hear from people who do go like the syndication route where, mm -hmm. yeah, they do pool together like 50 people, then at least as the sponsor, they have all the decision-making rights because you can't just divide it up Correct. 51 ways. So then how do you, how do you think about that? I'd be curious what, you know. I think we've just gotten comfortable with it and it, it definitely, you have to have some trust in that partner. And I think that you want to try to get and develop that relationship and that trust on the front end as much as you can. But it's, as much as they're vetting me, we're vetting them as yeah. well in terms of what other partners have they worked with? Who else do they know in the industry? I mean, the industry is, it's big, but it's also small. You have a, a lot of people know the same people and just kind of asking around of what's the story with these guys? Have you had good experiences with them? But otherwise, it's it's really just understanding that it is a partnership and they have 90% of the money in the deal and they're their alignment is with us, is, is aligned with us right. essentially, or their interest is aligned with us because we're all at the end of the day trying to have the property's performance be the best it can be so we can exit at, at the best price and right. at the best time. So those, the groups that we partner with are professional real estate investors and we have confidence, we have trust in them that they're going to make the right decisions on when to exit. The other thing is they have the control rights, but they tend to not exercise them. I mean, those are really meant for sort of a worst case scenario. Right. At the end of the day, it's we're sort of the local sponsor. We have that local expertise and they have trust in us to know kind of when the best time to exit is. Yeah. So none of our partners have come to us and been like, we need to sell this property. They want us to come to them and say, there's a great opportunity right now to exit or to refinance. So it, it is, I would just say it's trust. I mean, you have to have good partners and, and it's nice that we've been able to do kind of that repeat business and have more of a programmatic relationship with right. them. And this is such a financial alignment where they're running a fund, where they're charging to promote over a hurdle rate and mm -hmm. so are you. And so it's just, everyone's kind of in the same boat, rowing the same direction where it's exactly. not like there's some other motive they're gonna have where they're just trying to generate depending on which investor you have the highest multiple or highest IRR yeah. and you know what it is. And then, so that makes it kind of easy on the decision-making, I think. I think the only thing that it would be different in sort of out of line would be the fact that they are a fund and they do have a life cycle to that fund. But that's what I mean about kind of doing your homework right. on the front end. Like what, when is the fund 
when does the fund close? And then you sort of know, like, the worst case scenario, they're going to have to sell in five years. Right. So I think, but otherwise, I think it, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, everyone is kind of aligned, I think. So then three, three different investors you can bring these deals to, and then where are the, the properties actually located? And I know south suburbs of Chicago, yeah. and then where, where else? So we've got a number down in the south suburbs, kind of from Chicago Ridge down to University Park. And then we recently did two larger deals in the west suburbs. So we have one out in Carroll Stream and one a little bit further, like northwest in Carpentersville. And then we have three properties in West Michigan, and we have one up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So we've sort of been focused on Michigan was our first out-of-state purchase, which we did in 2018. There was definitely a learning curve with that one, just figuring out how to operate something and self-manage it three hours, two and a half, three hours away. We did have on-site staff there, but there's still some challenges with just kind of understanding that market. So we did sort of I would say underperform on that a little bit for the first nine months or so. Occupancy was kind of like 90%, which we, we obviously would like that to be 95 plus. Right. But after the first nine months or so, I think we really kind of figured out how to do it and how to, how to do it efficiently. And uh, ever since then, we've sort of been like 95, 96% plus and, and been raising rents and things like that. So then every, so every new market you enter, then who would be, because you're managing it. So one yep. perk to having the third-party managers, you'd, they would already know how everything works, let's say, in, in that part of Michigan, yep. what the security deposit laws are, what lease to you. So then I guess that, that's you figuring that out initially, yeah. or how'd you do that? A lot of research up front, figuring out what you need to do, self-managing, having employees, then you, you need to essentially register to, to be able to employ people in a different state as well. So there's a lot of administrative sort of things that go into that, which is part of the reason why we really don't want to expand out too quickly. I mean, we want to sort of be targeted and then also purchase multiple properties in those states or in those markets. Right, you have people there and figured it out. Right, which is what we've sort of started setting up in West Michigan and plan to continue doing. And, and then this past year, in this, the beginning of 2021, we did that first deal up in Wisconsin and Milwaukee. So we're sort of figuring that out. But this time, the learning curve there was a lot faster right. because we already went through it in a different state. So we've sort of, we learned what the things are that we need to pay attention to. And really, we haven't missed a beat nice. on that property. But, and then, so, but for the, I always find interesting, but then as the owner, unless you have like a, I don't know, a director of operations, someone else, a partner, like, so, but in most of those markets, you were the one figuring it out initially or had somebody? Well, definitely in Michigan in 2018, I was. Wisconsin, our team's a little bit bigger now. We have director of investments. We have some other people that can assist in that. But for the most part, I mean, I, I'm still sort of the one, if we're entering a new state, I'm making sure that I'm paying right. attention to that and making sure that things are getting done because I definitely learned my lesson with Michigan, right? And uh, I knew I didn't want to make that same mistake. And there's so much else that goes into the building the business than just finding the deals. Where we've gotten to a point here with Rise Invest, where I have people to do the deals, and then I really do a lot of the front end stuff. And yeah. then, but there's so much other business building to happen. So then that's why I asked that because I know you need a lease, you need to figure out how the rules work, and yeah. how to return a security deposit, how to employ people, and then apply for everything you need, and there's, there's a lot. So the leases, what we found to be really helpful is joining those local apartment associations and then being a member of the National Apartment Association and, and use it, utilizing those 
standard leases and things like that has really nice. kind of expedited that that process and just kind of eliminating that learning curve. Nice. But there's definitely other other things and other nuances to that. But that's that's definitely been a useful tool for us. And so how did you build out the team? Because then so initially it was you, but then you added property manager maintenance. But that's yep. more that's those are on site people in my mind. But Correct. then in terms of you said you had ten in the office or Correct. We have we have about ten people in our home office or our corporate office. I'm trying to remember now who sort of the first hire was, but essentially the team today is is consisting of we have a regional manager that's kind of handling the oversight of those on-site teams. We're actually adding a second regional here in a couple of weeks. We have another person starting. We have a director of capital projects and renovations that handles really all of our value add implementation, sourcing materials and things like that. We're really starting to pivot and, and try to move to more of an in-house kind of construction arm. But he, we, would, he would oversee the construction at every property in all the markets then? Essentially. And, and eventually you want to, we can bring that sort of fully in-house or it's not really even. We want to bring in like the labor in-house at some point. We've been able to kind of source a lot of the materials ourselves. I mean, Home Depot Pro, for example, has a renovations program. I mean, all these companies have these renovation programs that are are built for the multifamily industry. And we've been able to take advantage of that to sort of expedite the ordering materials and just kind of eliminating mistakes, and which yeah. has been actually more critical now than ever with some of the supply chain issues that are that are going on. And then we've got two staff accountants. We've got a director of investments that sort of heads up the acquisition process and also a lot of the asset management for us. And then we have two administrative assistants that are essentially like accounts payable people and and then basically an HR person. Okay, so nice. it's that team has definitely grown substantially in 2021 with the addition of we essentially closed five properties in 2021 about was that over about, about 1500 units just in nice. just last year. So we've we've that that corporate team has almost doubled really in the last 12 months. And then that's it's interesting what they're all doing because I would have thought there would have been more another analyst for looking at the deals or something. But that's yeah. it's really that most of that that's either support of the ongoing deals, asset management or construction management, and then or supporting the property management with the accounting and everything, the regionals. We've we've been able to stay pretty lean with the acquisition side between Mark, our director of investments, and myself. We're able to sort of handle that, but that is something that we're starting to talk about is what is that next hire, and, and we're thinking it probably is some sort of analyst, but it, it's likely a blend between an acquisitions analyst and an asset management. Yeah. For us, self-managing, I mean, just asset management, I think, is really important just making sure things don't slip through the cracks. Yeah, so, you'd get a, a big return, I think, on an analyst with how you have it set up because then that would free up Mark's time so much. Mm -hmm. Where if he was the one loading up the deals initially, then at least if there's someone else, even if they're brand new, can get it pretty far. And yep. they have saved Mark a lot of time. And But then initially you got to train them. Exactly. It's actually, it doesn't work. It doesn't save time initially, as you already know. Exactly. So. I've definitely experienced that this year with, with some of the additions. Is a lot of training and getting people up to speed on what we're doing. Right. So what then, I guess, maybe let's circle back. So then you, when you buy the first deal in Michigan, mm -hmm. that's a big jump. And it sounded like in the office, it was just basically you at that point? No. So in 2018, we had basically kind of like an analyst at that time was his title. And, and then we had like an, an accounts payable person. So there was three of us. Right. But then in terms of, so getting that deal closed and going, basically just you and the analyst mm -hmm. got it set up. And then... It was how many units? 90. So then the, like 
two people in Michigan working on it, one exactly. maintenance, one manager. Yep. And then what what came next then? Because this in terms of the the deals, then the ones in the south suburbs that were so those came in nineteen two thousand nineteen, and then twenty twenty was a little bit slow, obviously with COVID. Yeah. We saw a lot of low transaction volume, especially in second quarter. Right. But we actually did close one deal in the second quarter of twenty twenty that we got under contract right before COVID hit. And then we we had we were able to get other a couple other deals in the pipeline in 2020, one of which ended up sneaking in right before the end of the year, which was another one in Michigan. Actually, both of those 2020 deals were in Michigan. And then we had a we did a condo deconversion, which was kind of an interesting process in the south suburbs that closed in 2021. So then, what sort of what did you so going from two people, two three people to ten, mm-hmm. and growing the portfolio like 10x? What 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 would you what are some of like the biggest takeaways things you learned doing that just processes making sure that you have the right kind of processes in place and and you're able to get people sort of trained on on the way that you want it done especially given that we self-manage you have not only like your corporate team but you also have all these new employees at the site level so we've got we have 10 people in our corporate office, but we have another 60 p- employees that work at the site level. How many is 16 or 60? So our, our team in, in its entirety is we have 70 employees today. Obviously a large, like I said, 60 right. of those are on site, but the training at that level is, is really just as critical as it is. Right. It's um, a base of the property of the company is going to make a make or break the deal. Exactly. So. 2021 for me has really been focused on like processes, getting training materials together. Right. Hiring. Hiring yeah. has been huge and also difficult, especially at the, at the onsite level. So it's, I would say in terms of lessons learned, making sure your process is right and, and you've got good people. How are you do- either documenting the process or can, like getting the information to the employees? What tools are you using for that, for the actual training? So training materials, we, we utilize Google Sheets and Google Docs quite a bit, especially Google Sheets, just being able to kind of use that as a collaborative tool. Right. But so you type out the process, here's what to do in that, and then maybe yeah. have like a screenshot or photos in there. We use screenshots a lot. We use Appfolio is the, is the property management software that we use. So they also have a lot of training videos and things yeah. like that, that sort of self-education that the, the on-site employees can utilize. And then I, I'd say for the, on the corporate side, some of that has been kind of figuring out as we go too. I mean, we haven't had a real property accountant before until essentially March of, of 2021. We knew what we wanted that person to do, bank reconciliations, bank bill approvals, right. things like that, but just kind of formalizing that process and sort of the steps that, that they need to take. So a lot of different things go into it, I think. And it's, 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 it's interesting because you're sort of, you're building this business that's related to real estate, but a lot of different processes, I guess, that yeah. go into that. So yeah, I know that's something I've noticed too, where you're doing real estate deals and now you spend all your time thinking about training and hiring and what to do in the interviews. And it feels like a different business at times. Mm-hmm. So that we, I've started using Loom for some training and so it's, you, it records a video of either your screen or of you talking or both. And then you can just talk while you're doing it on the screen. And so, because yeah. I found it to take a ton of time to like type out, like I just shot one for even just how to open an LLC, how to get an EIN, mm-hmm. which if you type out all the steps, it takes like kind of a long time. And then you take yeah. screenshots in every page where this, it just was more or less, I just got the EIN, but slowly while mm-hmm. I talked about what to do and then recorded it. And it, the whole thing took like nine minutes. And then, and I just did it one take and then. It's like, hey, this is actually pretty, not no, so that bad. that sounds like yeah. a great tool. And so, because I've noticed a lot of 
people talking about that online and then that so we we're going to use that a bit more because then compared to writing out a whole little book on how to get how to open this or whatever that seemed easier so and actually it was because that then what about so for the interviews then so if you have all those on-site people i mean the who's at the property that's so important then who's who's conducting those interviews the regional you yeah. what's the well so when we're purchasing the property it depends on the situation with the seller but oftentimes we're able to retain the staff that's there currently and then or at least make the decision if we want to yeah which if we're given the option especially in 2021 with all the growth that we did and i think the labor market just being sort of tough we've we tried to retain people if we could but typically the, the regional would do those interviews so if we do have the option to retain staff the regional is doing those interviews prior to closing and then if if we need to have additional hires obviously we're we're going through that process 30 45 days prior to us closing to, to start getting people yeah. we have people in place ready to go at closing okay nice what what are some other lessons i mean so far what i've heard it's where you when you got going with these lps you really spent time to understand what they wanted to buy mm -hmm. so then going forward you could be confident that you have something in the pipeline that they'd want to proceed with and then you you weren't afraid to stick your neck out with your earnest money and get something tied up Mm -hmm. I mean, and then that you know, worked out where you haven't you haven't had to cancel a deal or never lost a deposit so that and then once you get going it's a lot of figuring things out and training what what else have you learned i i think for me it's real estate is so much of a relationship business that you're sort of you need to be focused on relationships across everything that you need so Equity is just one of those things. The investment sales brokers, I mean, for what we do and for the pr properties that we purchase, they really control that market and making sure that you're at the top of their mind and you're continuing to sort of build those relationships and, and uh, maintain them is really critical, I think. And how do you do that? It's just maybe is more like an informal process where you're just, so just want to call them and, or you got an actual way to track it just keeping in front of them we don't we don't really use like a something to track like our conversations with them but just making sure that we're on all their lists and and we're signing up for all their deals as they come out downloading the materials calling them figuring out what the story is and then being really active in terms of bidding on deals so there might be deals that there's obviously deals that we're more excited about than others but we really try to 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 make offers on almost every deal that sort of comes across our desk that's in our in our wheelhouse no matter if we're that if we're busy or sort of at capacity or not we want them to like see our letter of intent consistently that's interesting what's the thought behind that just to be we've gotten so many rebounds on deals that it's okay. it's for example like in 2021 we were sort of at capacity we had two deals under contract we were like well we really can't handle anything else but we we bid on a deal and we kind of stayed in front of the broker and and that deal ended up coming back around to us 30 days later, which then that timing was a lot better for us because we had yeah. capacity to focus on it. For me, the thought process is just like, you never know what's going to happen. Sometimes there's less bidders on a deal than you might think. And if that bidder decides to fall out of contract or, or maybe they can't come to an agreement with the purchase sale agreement, whatever the case may be, being there sort of for that rebound and as a backup offer, I think has been, yeah. we've gotten a number of deals that way. 
That's interesting because most and most of the deals you've done they've been sourced where there was a marketed deal, mm -hmm. but then either came back around or just for whatever reason worked out to be a good buy. I mean, we have we have two under contract right now in Michigan that were exactly that where we we were swamped in like October of 2021. We bid on this on these two properties. It was a portfolio, didn't get them, and there was somebody else that offered a higher price. And 30 days later, the broker calls us and says that that buyer hasn't been able to come up with their equity. Interesting. And that deal's come back around to us. And now we have it under contract at the price that we wanted it at in the first place. And on these deals where they come back around, how many bidders would you say are in the call for offers or like this? Definitely depends on the market, but like some of these West Michigan deals are less smaller markets where you might only have five groups and one or two of those groups might not be qualified. And if you're in suburban Chicago, it's suburban Chicago is pretty big, but depending on kind of where you're at, you could have 10, 15 offers right. on something. That's why it's interesting to hear how successful this has been for the, the getting the deal rebounds. Cause that, right. If there's 15 bidders, I would, I mean, honestly, part of my thought was, well, there's, it's such a low hit rate of it coming back around where we'd want it. Like actually don't, don't write if you don't think you're going to be close because then it's going to it's going to come off like you're just bidding low all the time. Yeah. It. So that's interesting where you've had the total opposite experience. As yeah. Well, well, I wouldn't say we're bidding low, but we're sort of bidding under where we know we're going to get the right. award. So we can feel out the brokers to figure out like where kind of that pricing yep. is going to come in at. So we're not like, we're not really lowballing. It's more about, we're always going in where we're comfortable. So that might be a lowball offer on some. But otherwise, it might be $500,000 less than where their guidance Makes is. Sense. Or, okay. But we're definitely not like 15 or 20% under under the ask. Yep. Okay, because some of these deals I see, they come out and I look at the whisper number and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And then yeah. if I were to just throw my hat in, then it'd be like, oh, look at this thing, $2 million below. That's not many deals, but some. So then that's, that's where I'm like, well, then it'd be better to, to not. But then if you're yes. close where it just it's in the range then you just go in where you're comfortable and then hope it comes back around. And even those deals, like to your point, like if you are two or $3 million under the price, we're still communicating that so to just, the broker. You if we're just not, tell them like, yeah. verbally. If we're not writing, we're still calling them and saying, hey, this is where we're at. Like, I'm not sure why we're so much lower, but this is kind of where we're at. Interesting. And we yeah. always try to give them feedback. I've talked to a lot of brokers about that. They really like that. Mm -hmm. Where these things are, they'll hear from somebody and then, they say they want this kind of deal. They finally get it to mm -hmm. the person and then they go like radio silent and they're, they're not happy about that. So. I, I think we're pretty quick to give them an answer if we're interested or not, or if we're a pass. And if we're a pass, we're still giving them feedback of like, why is it? We don't like the location. It's too small. We don't like the unit mix, whatever the answer might be. And then how in most, I guess, in terms of where the deals have been sourced, it's all been through through brokers, but in on the market or some off, some on? How's that some work? have been off. A couple have been off market, but it's still through a broker. As yeah. an example, we were in, in kind of early 2021, we were having a really hard time finding deals. It was just like ultra competitive. It felt like anything that we were offering on, we were just getting kind of blown out of the water. And so we were trying to brainstorm what, how do we stay competitive right now because it just feels like groups are there. I think there was just pent up demand from low transactions in 2021. And I'm smiling because this is then, and then right after this, you bought 1500 units. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you this kind worked of whatever you're going to say. Okay. Flows. 
we basically went on this sort of off-market campaign with a couple brokers that we've done a number of deals with and basically targeted the south suburban market that we have a pretty good concentration of units in and we we essentially wrote 10 LOIs without seeing financials or anything like that. I mean, in today's market, you can go on CoStar and you can pull a lot of data on rents and things like that. And you can use an implied expense ratio and kind of figure out where you think the value is. Especially if you have the unit mix and a clue with what's going on with the utilities because the taxes you can just look up and... Exactly. So you can get... you, You can get somewhat close without having real financials from an, from an owner. And that's what we did. And we wrote 10 offers on, on 10 different properties and we got one response. And then that turned into an agreement on price and a purchase sale agreement. And eventually we closed on it and it happened to be by far the largest deal that we've ever done. Nice. So it was a 672 unit apartment complex, which I wouldn't have been thinking that we could pull off two years ago, but we were able to do it with the help of that private equity funded family office. So that helps you get to 1500 pretty quick yeah. when you can buy 672 in one shot. Also, what's interesting too, if it's, if it's off market, did you, were you able to get more flexible timing? Because if times you can, sometimes you can't, but. I think we did, I think we just did a standard 30-30 on that deal. The thing is with, with that, with that we, we have the relationship now with those partners where right. we. Okay. Now we're not sort of like putting our earnest money out there and like not knowing where the equity is coming from. Now it's a little bit different. We were vetting the deal much more upfront with our equity, putting it in front of them and saying, what's your thoughts on this? It helps when we've already done deals with those groups and we've done deals with those groups in that market. So they're familiar with that market. They know what rents we're charging down the street at the other property. So we were able to get really quick feedback from them, which is really critical to what we do. And, and they, they do a really great job at that. And what stage of the deal do you do this? One, you're writing your offer or once maybe if you get an accepted offer? So client? it depends on like, it's sort of based off of feedback that we get from the broker. Now this was an off market deal. So we engaged them really early. Like we were basically like, here's our underwriting, here's our pro forma. Here's what, where we want to offer. What do you guys think? And, right. and they're, they're pretty quick to say, Hey, this looks pretty interesting. Or it looks interesting if the price was $3 million less. And then from there, we submitted that offer. And then we got feedback from the seller. We got a counter. And now we have more conversations with our equity. Okay, we got a counter at this price. Like, it feels like we're heading in the right direction. I think we're going to get this. And then what that does is put the wheels in motion on their end to basically circulate it in more detail with their team. Talk to their investment committee. Talk to whoever's, whatever people are really making those decisions at that group getting that feedback from them and really what we want is from at the time that we actually have a signed or an agreed either verbal or written letter of intent to purchase the property we really want to know who our equity okay. is at that point and and that's what we were able to do on this one so we really didn't need more time we knew that our equity was committed to the deal at the time that we signed or had an agreed upon letter of intent and even by and your all these deals have an attorney drafted purchase and sale agreement exactly. So then you end up with more time, right? You talk to them right. about the LOI. Two, two to three, three weeks. weeks go by for the yep. PSA, and then then all of a sudden, pretty it feels like you got three months to close this thing. And that's really how it really is more of like almost a ninety day timeline by the time yeah. you get the PSA signed, and then you have a sixty day, thirty days of diligence, thirty day close of escrow. It's almost ninety days. It's interesting. What what about so then on these bigger deals? How did you work the I guess, were all the loans non-recourse or what kind of financing did you use? 
Mostly non-recourse. That big one was non-recourse. It was a bridge loan because the property needed a lot of work. What type um, of lender? A debt fund? or what It was a life insurance, life co. Okay, nice. Which was our first one with, with a life company. But typically, those are lower loan to value, and I, w- I view that yeah. as like for stabilized properties. So then that's, that's interesting. And that wasn't, I mean, I think that was sort of my experience with them too, but they... I think they have sort of a different appetite for like a traditional bridge loan where you can get 75% of the purchase price plus 100% of the CapEx. And that's kind of what we got on this one. And we needed it because the property is really in disrepair and the rents are under market and property is right. really not well maintained. Um, what was the deal size then? So this, this is it, it, was about, it was almost a $70 million deal. And as the purchase price or including mm-hmm. the renovation? No, that was just the purchase price. And then there was about a... $4 million CapEx plan on that property. Then what are you, what are you doing for the loan carve-out guarantees? Because, I mean, typically, I mean, like a lender would want some, like the op, the sponsors to collectively have a net worth equal to the loan amount. Yep. So, so they were pushing pretty hard for that on that deal, and we pushed back as hard as we could. Yep. And eventually we had... We had to actually have our the family office that we work with also come into the guarantee on that to, to solve for that. Now, if we're not doing a bridge loan and it's more of an agency loan, the agency requirements tend to be a little bit lower, even on the larger deals. Like you get to a certain point and they just, they want like 10 or $15 million of net worth. So we haven't had as much of an issue there, but this one in particular, it was like, we were kind of at one point getting a little bit, getting a little bit nervous because we knew we were going to have to figure something out. And, and luckily, again, our, our partners have, have been great and right. have been able to help us out. And it's such a limited, a narrow range of activities that could trigger that mm-hmm. where, I mean, that's a, a good risk for them to take because then if they're willing to do that, I mean, then that's going to really give them a leg up against anyone else they might be competing with to yep. invest as equity because then they, you, like you as a sponsor know, okay, that problem is at least solved. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I'm not surprised the lender needed that, someone on that of that size because it's a transitional loan a lot different risk profile than just an agency loan on a stabilized deal yep interesting what about i guess that would have had a pretty big earnest money deposit then are you view that was trying to think that was definitely a few hundred thousand i think three or four hundred thousand but we did a lot of selling in 2011 or sorry 2021 as well so we had a little bit more liquidity Got it. To, to do that that if that was in phoenix they'd want like three or three million bucks of earnest like uh yeah. that's that's where i was like how did that well it was an off-market that, deal yeah. too and we we actually we just we suggested i think it was four hundred thousand, and we they never sort of countered that okay they just, just accepted that nice. which we were a little bit surprised we thought that they were probably going to come back and want a million bucks or yeah something. we haven't been in a position where we've had to come up with a deposit that's large enough for us to need to go to our lps and, and get that nice. but I mean, I don't, I think they'd be willing to do it at this point. I, I think if you're willing to sign a guarantee for them specifically, I know that the earnest money, understand that there's really no risk to that. Right, you're going to be through due diligence and this setup, and then you're, yeah. at that point, it's just if the debt and equity shows up and they're the... Exactly. So it's all kind of, almost up to them if that happens in a way, mm-hmm. you know, if they, but that, okay, nice. Well, that's, that's been a, a real advantage then i think working in the workforce housing space and in the midwest that because some of these things i'm looking at in phoenix like we're buying a 26 million dollar deal right now and it's a a million dollar earnest money deposit and non-refundable immediately okay so we had to do all of our due diligence up front yeah but it was so then that's a different that's that's a totally different risk profile then now where you're there wasn't if you if we 
you got to really be sure about your LP and just everything. Mm -hmm. We were able to get old title, old survey, which wasn't that old, a couple of years they had owned it. And then we ran an environmental records search on our own. Yeah. And then actually they sent us a phase one after that. But so we, we got every, and it's a renovation deal. So the in-place rents aren't the biggest thing. We yeah. we just did the physical inspection earlier this week and we were going through and it sounds crazy, but we were like where you could have the biggest hiccup would be if it was the unit count was wrong or the unit mix was wrong or yeah. something. So we are, I would like, I personally counted all the units when we were doing yeah. it and then <laughs> just made sure we were getting the, what we were thought we were buying. And, and also we checked, it's a mix of two beds and one beds. We counted them all. And so yep. the way the buildings were laid out, it wasn't too hard to count. Mm -hmm. It was like all the buildings were two beds, except for these two that were one. So that was not too tough, but that to me was like that, that, and then when we were just initially touring it, I, we figured out what all the major building systems were. Yeah. The HVAC works. It's copper plumbing. It's copper electric. It's C is what we call it here. They got a different mm -hmm. kind of plastic pipe there, ABS. For the drain, so we're looking at it going, great, it's all modern stuff. So our rehab is going to be basically cosmetic. And then, but it's a totally different different deal. So then that, that's been a, that's been nice then because you can avoid a lot of those challenges then where you get your 30 days to have a look and mm -hmm. the earnest money is like a normal amount. Like it didn't used to be like that, right. but all these <laughs> people from California are It's competitive in, in those so. high growth markets for sure. And it's a totally different profile of deal too, mm -hmm. where there is very little cash flow, but the price appreciation that you're looking at is you're, especially in Arizona where the taxes, they don't change when you buy and sell the property. Mm -hmm. So then all this rent lift you're creating at these super low cap rates, you're Biggest expense is usually taxes, and it stays the same. I mean, yep. this, I don't have the tax bill memorized on the on the twenty something million dollar deal, but on mm -hmm. a six million dollar one we just bought, it's like twelve grand a year only. Wow! Which that's like less than a it's yeah. like a house in, in Cook County in Chicago. <laughs> exactly. So then that or like a normal house, not a six a six million dollar house, would be right. Would be six figures the property tax bill. So then that's been a real. A real plus to the space you're in, I guess, why, what sort of drove you to the workforce housing strategy or did you fall into it? Because it sort of seems like you started in it and mm -hmm. stayed in it. I, it just makes sense to me. I think you have a lot of, a lot of renters for life sort of yeah. mentality and not necessarily like a renter by choice. And I just think there's like a need for, you know, affordable housing, not like section eight housing, but just like reasonably priced 800 to $1,200 rents. And that's really where we play is depending on the market. And obviously like if it's a one or it's a three bedroom, generally 800 to $1,200 rents. There's just, we just see tremendous demand for that sort of price point. And uh, you, you can't build workforce housing. It sort of is like a natural occurring yeah. type of thing. The, the properties that are being built today will maybe one day be workforce housing 40 or 50 years from now. And we just, we just we think it makes a lot of sense and our investors think the same way you have to maintain it there's there's other challenges that come with it right. you got to be on top of your collections and things like that as well but i think just the fact that it's sort of in really high demand and we can always maintain high occupancy is what what's attractive to us it has a really favorable supply and dynamic supply and demand dynamics where mm -hmm. in a weird way so when i think about workforce housing it's almost like there's a dwindling supply of it because someone could buy a mm -hmm. workforce housing deal that's in a really nice area and go, all right, I'm going to bring this up a lot, like a right far. And then it's not even workforce housing anymore. And they're not building any new ones. Yep. So then that's kind of the same when people talk about kind of that like lower end of the industrial space too, of that product type is the mm -hmm. same story where some of these product types like office and stuff, if it gets too old, there's like no users, but 
industrial housing, like there's always demand industrials, different businesses, but what, what have you experienced for rent growth then? Cause that is- it's been pretty strong, especially the last 24 to 36 months. Well, I think there's a couple things we, I mean, we've seen some metrics, especially in the South suburbs, specifically in Chicago here, that was just co-star reports and things like that, 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 that sub-market is one of the tightest occupancy sub-markets in the entire country. Wow. I think it's, it's about almost 97% occupied. And we see that firsthand in terms of our application volume down there. I mean, that 672 unit property that I was talking about earlier, we have a list of 45 people that have deposits on hand with us today that are looking to move in. Wow. We're probably averaging 150 applications a month at that property. So the name of the game there is like, how quickly can you turn the units and get people moved in? It's not, how do you find your renter? I mean, these people are already approved. They're qualified. Like they're ready to go. And with that, I mean, obviously if you have that tight of occupancy, yeah, then your rent price. growth yeah. sort of falls right into place. So, and then in Kalamazoo, I saw another metric that Kalamazoo has been one of the, the highest rent growth markets for the, for four or sorry, Q3 of 2021, it was almost 10%. So some of these like secondary markets we're we're seeing really strong growth and I'm not sure I really understand why that is. Um, we don't underwrite that. We underwrite like in these markets, we're underwriting 2% rent growth. I wish that would seem more normal, but there's been such a big lift in people moving out of big cities to either the South or to secondary cities like Kalamazoo or just mm-hmm. to a further out suburb where if you don't need to, if these people used to work in like downtown Chicago, it's so much cheaper and easier. So for a lot of people, they think it's just a better lifestyle being in Kalamazoo and they can rent a $900 apartment. Yep, exactly. So that makes a lot of sense and you couldn't really get anything near the, when you had to come into work or whatever but that the renter though what's what's interesting it's not it's not necessarily like a white collar worker who's like oh we just work from home now yep so that like that's what's that's what's surprising to me that that seeing that kind of growth because i would think it would have to do something with people moving out of the cities but the 900 a month renter like they they're they're doing something in person i'd imagine it's like a blue collar type some thing. i mean we definitely have some folks that are doing customer service type jobs that are able to, to work from home. I'd, I'd say that we still have a pretty good concentration of people that have worked from home during COVID. A lot of them are blue collar, but they're also, they also tend to be sort of essential jobs. They're manufacturing jobs, they're healthcare jobs. These people are going to work. So it's been pretty stable. We have not seen really almost any impact in collections. I'd say almost maybe, maybe 1% higher delinquency than we had previously, but very, I'd say, much less of an impact than I initially would have thought in terms right. of like rent collections. You would think that would be the renter that would be most impacted mm-hmm. for this, the, the white collar worker who just kept their job and got the work from home and didn't have their hours changed like that. That makes sense. But especially early on when some of these people, maybe the factory was closed or told to stay home. Interesting. We, we, we haven't seen that. And in the cases that we have, I mean, there's a subset of tenants that restaurant workers or hospitality focused obviously those got hit the hardest. They have these rental assistance programs, which has really kind of bolstered uh, that as well, where any sort of mishap that we've had there has, has been made up by these rental assistance programs. Oh, nice. Great. Let's, and then what are, what's like a cap rate on these kind of deals? Cause you're, you're generating a high cash on cash return. So I was assuming yeah. high cap rate interest only that probably yeah. how that works. Cap rates have definitely been compressing. I think when we bought 
our first deal in Michigan in 18, it was almost a seven cap. Wow. Which is sounds pretty good. Well, I've been doing this long. If I remember passing on seven caps because they were so they're too, too low. I mean, in like 2009, exactly. you know, if you, you could have bought an eight cap in like in Chicago or like a nice, like a Minneapolis or looking. Right. Anyways, but that's interesting times. Right. That's long gone now. Yeah. But today I'd say, I mean, we've seen workforce deals trade at sub five caps that have good value add. I mean, I guess technically the two properties we have under contract are probably sub five caps, but the in-place is almost, we're almost ignoring the in-place right. income. The rents are $300 under market and the expenses are, we don't really, we almost don't even trust the expenses. So right. it's sort of, we have two properties in that sub market already. So we're underwriting to, to how we operate those properties currently. Yep. with the exception of like taxes and things like that and utilities. So yeah, once what you're doing, it's funny with the either the broker materials or the owner P&L, you're just, you basically don't use it except for maybe the utilities, even the tax bill, like look it up yourself. Don't even, don't look at their right. their statement. So that, I know that's why I started chuckling because it's the same thing where we'll mm -hmm. get it and it's like I use the broker OM for like a rent roll in to see what the units look like inside. Right. Right. That's about it. I mean, it, it helps when you already own in the market too, because yeah. then you can, you have a reference point of your own profit and loss statement to say, here's what we're paying for trash and service contracts and repairs and maintenance, et cetera. Right. But then what cap rate are you stabilizing these at then today? We're I think we're, we're like our year three, after we've executed our business plan, we're probably stabilizing like at a seven and a half or an eight cap. Nice. And um, then you think... When that deal sells, what do you think? If it was today, what's the market cap rate on that stabilized workforce? Honestly, I think probably a five and a half. Wow, that's a huge spread. So then, it's even not hearing lower. That, that's a. That... I mean, it could be five twenty-five to six, depending on the market. But we don't. We also don't underwrite that. I mean, we know that those markets had higher cap rates before, like everywhere. Everywhere has, I suppose. But in those secondary and tertiary markets, you gotta anticipate some cap rate expansion with the rise of interest rates. Because they're not going to be quite as stable. I mean, if you look at Chicago, yep. those Chicago, you may have been at a five fifty or five seventy five cap, or maybe a six cap, four or five years ago, and today you're at like a five, right, or five twenty five. So yep. this, it hasn't moved quite as much. But these tertiary markets may have been seven or seven and a half caps, and now they've compressed down to five or five and a half. So we we just we have to be defensive with how we kind of anticipate our exit. We're definitely not underwriting exiting at a five and a half cap in these secondary and tertiary markets. How much are you trending up your cap rate? If it's a five and a half today, mm -hmm. let's say in a given market, what would you? We're typically trending at like 10 basis points a year. And we, right. we yeah. typically underwrite seven year hold. But even those markets, I don't think we're underwrite. I don't think we're underwriting much less than like a six and a half cap on an exit. Makes sense. Because then that and I think the main main metric that these invest investors you was it one or all three where they were real focused on cashing? Well, I think they're all sort of focused on it, but I was referring to one group in particular that's kind of laser focused on yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Because then even but even that deal you worked to get stabilized once that's stabilized that the cash on cash would be really attractive, giving it a, like a seven. Most of our deals are our cash on cash. We we're still hitting close to double digit returns within the first twelve months because nice. these aren't with the exception of this large one that that 672 unit the rest of them are a little bit faster turnaround plays you're not going in and doing this extensive like 24 or 36 month plan you're able to really execute within 12 months and get that get that cash flowing pretty quickly because then what what's the typical scope then or 
I mean, this, every deal is so different. I mean, but generally, like if we're renovating interiors, we're spending eight to $12,000 a unit <clears throat> cabinets, basically the kitchen, we're focusing on the kitchen and bathrooms and then flooring and, and yep. two-tone paint. What, what, what age are these properties? Typically 70s and 80s. So then this is already modern plumbing, electric. Most of it. For the most part. We've, we've had a number of properties that have had like those older dab block panels where we've had to go in and replace those. We're actually doing that now in one of our properties. So it depends, but most of them have like the copper plumbing and, and all that kind of things. Nice. Seen copper wiring, electrical wiring, things like that. But that, which then that makes it much more manageable. We've done some of these renovations in Chicago where it was like so comprehensive or you're duplexing into a basement and mm -hmm. it's like, there's no parking and it is. And then uh, some of these where then it's like, oh, we just changed the kitchen and paint it. So it's not pretty good <laughs> in terms of like the scope. Like this is not, yeah. you can like store the cabinets in the old clubhouse. Like, okay, this is not, not so bad. So, well, nice. No, I think that's great. I mean, let's see, well, let's wrap it up there. I think that would cover a lot. I mean, I definitely learned a ton. So thanks for, thanks no, for being on. No, it's been on. great being on and appreciate you having me. If any uh, viewer or listener wants to get in touch, how would they get in touch with you? They can reach out. They can feel free to email me. My email address is Kurt, K-U-R-T at Bender. That's B-E-N-D-E-R-M-G-M-T.com. And we can connect there and happy to, to talk to anybody for 15 minutes or so and try to help out. Great. All right. Thanks, Kurt. Appreciate it. Great job. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for viewing and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities and the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.